Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with Menahem Golan's 1984 romantic comedy, Over the Brooklyn Bridge. Over a bridge somewhere Just waiting for us out there Is what we It's Praising Came. I'm your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell. And with me is the fiddler on the roof himself, Doug Tilly. Doug, how's life up on that roof right now? It's garbage, Liam. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, no, I am actually feeling very thankful at the moment. Uh, people who are close to me in my everyday life know that my mother had a pretty significant health scare earlier uh, in this week, as of the time that we're recording this, but she seems uh, to be through the worst of it at the moment. She is in hospital, but she is recovering well. She's going to be there for a while, but it was—it uh, wasn't that it was touch and go. It was just that it was very scary because it was so unknown. And I'm—I'm I'm pretty far away from my family, as people who listen to a lot of our podcast know. So it makes you feel particularly distant. But uh, things are—they seem to be uh, on the up and up, and uh, hopefully they'll continue in that direction. Well, yeah, medical situations like that are always scary, but when you have that distance from people that you care about, it's really hard because you feel really limited in what you can do. So I am I am very grateful as well, Doug, to hear about uh, that she's she's turned around and that there's you start visualizing these situations every time you don't hear something about Uh something that could be happening. Yeah, it's just it's just a nightmare, especially if you live in the kind of brains that Liam and I have, which are messed up. To say the least. Yeah, we're a little anxious. We're a little weird. You know, there might be some <laughs> mental health stuff going on. We're going to discuss that later, actually. But first, <laughs> this is our podcast where we discuss uh, the career of Carol Kane. We actually have two things to discuss today, not just over the Brooklyn Bridge, but a little short <laughs> you, something. You were overjoyed, Liam, to discover that you had a second thing that you had to watch. It was so cool. And <laughs> trust me, that's what we're going to be discussing here in a second. But before that, we have some Carol Kane news. Uh, uh, you guys might remember we discussed previously uh, Carol Kane has a newer movie coming out with Jason Schwartzman called Between the Temples, uh, uh, made by Nathan Silver, and uh, it premiered at Sundance. And so reviews are coming in and articles are coming out. And particularly, Doug has shared with me this article about how excited Carol Kane was to work with Jason Schwartzman. Do you think that's true, Doug? Do you think that there's like a... There's like appreciation there, a mutual appreciation going on with Jason Schwartzman. I've I've read a number of articles about this movie, and it seems like they really did legitimately get along well. I've also heard comparisons for this movie. I heard it on the Daily Beast, so whatever. But uh, to to Harold and Maude, which is an interesting comparison. Of course, there's a big age gap between Jason Schwartzman and and Carol Kane's character. So, I mean, I don't know if it has tonally is similar to that, but I think it's – it would be necessary for that sort of relationship in a movie. You would hope that they would have a closeness off screen as well. And my understanding is that this movie exists more at, or prior to filming, existed more as a treatment than a script. So this involved, I assume, a certain amount of improvisation or or, or whatever for uh, Carol Kane and Jason Schwartzman together. Like, is, is that that's sort of what I gleaned from this article? Am I wrong about that? I mean, I think that's. I think there was at least elements of that. I think they wanted them to develop a comfortable relationship with each other, and I think both of those performers probably have a, a bit of experience with that anyway. Though it's interesting as well because they've obviously done a lot of really, you know, when Jason Schwartzman works with Wes Anderson, you don't get the impression there's a lot of improvisation going on there. Though I might be wrong about that because they've had a long-term relationship. But I mean, I like Jason Schwartzman as an actor very much, actually. Especially, I think he's really grown into himself a little bit. Uh, and uh, and the concept of this movie is um, 
is really interesting. And I'm glad to see that the response out of Sundance seems to be really positive. I am also excited about this. We have other shows. I won't say which uh-huh. uh, which uh, <laughs> male actor they cover, but we have other shows when we discuss new movies, and it can be a bit daunting because they don't sound like a fun time. I'm excited to check this out, Doug. I know on this show, if people don't remember, we go chronologically, so we'll probably be dead before we get to this movie. But maybe we'll just mention it if we see it on the show, uh, what we thought of it. <laughs> We're allowed to watch Carol Kane movies in our spare time. I don't know about that. I will say what's unique about the Carol Kane podcast compared to, well, you were you were talking about Eric Roberts, but but also the Steve Buscemi one is that Steve Buscemi always works on sort of a high level. He could pop up right. in a big Hollywood movie tomorrow and it wouldn't be a surprise. And even have a lead role in it, right? He's, he's thought of as a very kind of consistently working Hollywood actor. Carol Kane has worked consistently as well, but her career has really gone through ebbs and flows. We're kind of in mm-hmm. sort of an ebb part of her career in terms of the movies that we're talking about right now, uh, even though she's, you know, becoming much more well-known in the uh, mid-80s uh, for Taxi and stuff like that. But I think that some of her projects in recent years, they mentioned in this article, like The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and Star Trek right. Strange New Worlds, right. has brought her back into enough of a profile. I think she's seen, you know, when people look at the breadth of her career, which is obviously what we're doing here, they can see just how talented she is. And I really hope that, you know, we'll see a few more roles like this where she can be front and center. It is... Um, you know, compared to our last episode, uh, Can She Bake a Cherry Pie, where, I mean, Carol Kane was in it for such a small amount of time, you might even debate whether she's in it at all. Sure. Even in this movie, right? It's very much like a supporting role. I'm, right. I'm looking forward to us covering more Carol Kane projects where she's front and center. I agree. And that's that's uh, part of what's exciting about this movie is that uh, this new movie is not just here's a newer movie with her in it that's getting you know, pretty positive reviews out of Sundance, which is great. But also it's like she's her and Jason Schwartzman are carrying the movie. And I think like that's something that I think we'll get to more of or at least a strong, a larger role than, than recently. But right now we are in a place where we're not getting a lot of Carol Kane. Uh, that might be also why we are not just covering the, the uh, uh, productions that seem you know, big or well-known or relevant. We're also, you know, covering some lesser-known things, possibly some things that might feel a little outside the norm or even irrelevant and stupid. And so uh, up next, next, we're going to be talking about (laughs) Fairytale Theater Season 2, Episode 3, Sleeping Beauty from 1983. Um, For those of you who don't know, uh, Fairytale Theater is an American award-winning live-action fairytale fantasy drama anthology television series of 27 episodes that originally broadcast nationally on Showtime from September 11th, 1982 until November 14th, 1987. Uh, so that's, you know, they cover 25 classic fairy tales. That's cool. Uh, Sleeping Beauty. I'll be honest. I saw the cast for this. Um, not, not everyone here do I know. I'm not going to pretend like I know all these names. But <laughs> I saw Bernadette Peters. I saw Christopher Reeve. I saw Beverly D'Angelo and I thought, okay, I don't know what this is. I'm a little annoyed that I forgot we were supposed to watch this thing and I got to watch it last minute, but I think it's going to be cool. I'm excited about it. Was I fulfilled in that excitement? <laughs> Let's start with you, Doug. What did you think of Sleeping Beauty? Well, I mean, I think you're underselling just how kind of a big of a production fairy tale theater was, right? I mean, these, you're right, there weren't a lot of episodes, but Shelley Duvall, I guess she produced this series of fairy tale adaptations that were sure. star studded and this movie you know you'd call it a movie it's an hour long this production is a star studded production but the odd thing is that it's a star studded like full of hollywood stars 
but they're still dealing with television style budgets and television style special effects. And there's also kind of like a homemade quality to it generally. Like all the backgrounds are meant to be almost like a school play type thing. Um, and so on that level, Liam, I had a pretty good time <laughs> with it. Cool. But I will, I will say this. It's way too long. And there's so much mugging. You know what I mean? So especially George DeSunza, who I knew from early seasons of um, Law and Order. He was one of the cops on it. He plays this woodsman who's basically the host, right? And he's telling the story. Right. And it has this kind of weird structure where the story is being told. And we don't know how much of it is real. And then it's happening. Anyway, whatever. But he's playing it up so hard that and it, and it just keeps going and going and going that yeah it's uh it can be a little irritating it does feel like it goes on too long there's this big like side quest where christopher reeve who's playing like the handsome prince charming he has to go find like he's trying to find a princess and he actually uh, ends up meeting a different princess also played by bernadette peters who uh you know is trying to seduce him and it actually gets oddly sexual for a kids program mm -hmm, in the 1980s mm -hmm, mm -hmm. actually that, there's a little bit of that in this generally uh so yeah this uh, it feels very meandering it is fun to see all these familiar faces it's great to see Christopher Reeve playing Prince Charming basically the role he was born to play uh and Beverly D'Angelo is having a fucking great time she is going wild and I love that I love seeing that but I will say that generally I was like ah this is a reasonable way to spend an hour but not uh, an ideal one <laughs> there you know there's a few people who do multiple roles in in this Doug did you appreciate that aspect where it's like this is our company and they are taking on different persona within the production I wish there was a little more of it yeah Christopher Reeve plays the second role as well as so does Sally Kellerman who plays both the queen uh, basically uh Sleeping Beauty's mother as and the queen the the mother of the other character that Bernadette Peters plays. Yeah, I like that. I, I don't know if they do that in more of the episodes. I kind of, like I said, I wish there was, I wish every character got to play multiple people, including Kyle Kane, who has not as big of a part in this as I would have liked. Okay. The, the lineup we have here shows only a few people. I don't think that's accurate. Like okay. Ron Rifkin as the squire. He was also the king in the other story. Like multiple people did multiple roles, roles here. Cause I recognize Which king faces. was he? The king of my son. So Christopher Reeve has two roles, and I think they're both great. And I would yeah. disagree with you. He was not born to play Prince Charming. He was born to play the shitty prince. He's so good <laughs> as the <laughs> shitty prince. He was so shitty that I wasn't sure it was him at first. That you're I right. Knew, he does a good job. I knew immediately because not only is this prince shitty, he's a dandy shitty prince. And I was like, there's the Christopher Reeve I know. I, I get it. He played Superman. Everybody wants to think of him as this strong, manly man. But my man could fop it up if he wanted to and when he does i like it and i thought this role the second role i mean not that he's bad as pretty charming he's also great there but him as the foppy oh my god what is this poor people prince is great <laughs> and his dad is the guy who is his squire it's the same actor. oh okay yeah, yeah and this that happens that's actually happens multiple times in the production i was looking very closely because um i as soon as it started, I hadn't looked at who was playing what. So I was primed for my girl, Bernadette Peters, who I love. And I was like, okay, when does she come? Which I wasn't surprised when it was like, okay, of course, she's the princess. Why didn't I? Sorry, just... Liam, I don't mean to interrupt. But I, I, I mean, according to this uh, cast list, you are wrong. <laughs> really? The king, the, yeah, the king is played by Richard Libertini, who is a very familiar actor because he's bald and has that big beard and stuff like that. While the squire was Ron Rifkin. They are very similar. 
But I thought Ron Rifkin played another role. Okay. Maybe he did. Maybe it's I'm not willing to rewatch it to find out if I'm right or not. <laughs> it's available so, on YouTube. Liam, we could be watching it right now. <laughs> I would rather not. Okay. Uh, uh, one of the things that, that is true about this, I think you kind of mentioned it really quickly, but talk a little bit about the production style of this thing because it is very much, um, I, you know, if I say it's a low budget or a uh, or a uh, sort of um, Painted back. It, it, I, I want to describe the backgrounds and and the sets as creative, but maybe a little bit low budge for what we're used to now with different productions. And it's very much designed to give you the feeling of theater, even though it's filmed. Yes, you're watching it on TV. So. Absolutely. It's meant to give you this thing of like I'm watching theater right now. Did that work for you? How did you feel about that? And 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 there's not a lot of them, but there are some special effects, all that <laughs> stuff. How did you feel about that? The the stage bound nature of it does work for me because they established it very early. I didn't really have any trouble with that. The difficulty is when they move away from that. Really, right? It's better for them to have uh, Christopher Reeve on a horse that isn't moving and they have a green screen in the background than to then switch to a castle that's obviously has a big like a field in front of it. Like that, there's that 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 they are showing something that couldn't exist on stage. There's a little bit of of difficulty for my brain to kind of transition between the two. The special effects, on the other hand, Liam, look, this was actually probably a very expensive production for television of this time period but um when when beverly beverly d'angelo is like uh disappearing into a puff of flame or when she's using her powers she turns into a giant at one point i mean that stuff look it's charming uh while also being just really video toastery you know special effects from the 80s very early for tv type stuff i mean look it works in that it it is consistent with the style that they have here, which is all a little bit handmade, but it uh, it's definitely of its time. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's distracting per se, but I think because it is long and there are, in my mind, pacing issues, I think it was easier to then feel a way about the production. Right. And uh, I think a shorter presentation with maybe a little less riffing. This is the thing for me, Doug. I don't believe that this is actually meant for kids. <laughs> I think you might be right. I think, I think adults right. are supposed to be amused by this because it's it's pitched at a level that not just appropriate. I think when you say something isn't appropriate for kids, people assume sex and violence. That's not necessarily what I mean, though. There is a level of sex jokes in this that seems weird in a children's production. I think uh, I, I think also something is appropriate for kids just because the tenor of what you're doing feels more connected to something adults would appreciate than children. And that's where it is for me. Despite this being a fairy tale, despite it feeling like theater, it's got a little bit of a quippiness that's, I think, not what kids would like. It's more for adults. And I think that slows up the production. It doesn't actually – I think it's supposed to make it more fun. And I don't know that it hit all the time, but I will say, and then I'll ask you what you thought. Uh-huh. The one of the things that sells it for me, uh, where I'm like, okay, well, this wasn't you know terrible, is the is the is the performances. Like I really actually, I was going on and on about Christopher Reeve, which I I you know I really do love, but I felt like there were a lot of fun performances in this. What did you think of the performances, and did anyone particularly stick out for you? They everyone involved seemed to really be enjoying the fact that they could play it so broadly. You yeah, know, I think yeah. I think everyone was just really into being in a fairy tale type situation. And 
you know, I thought uh, Rene Auberjonois, I think it's how you pronounce his last name, you know, who played um, the guy from D- DS9 who plays the king in this. He, I shouldn't say just from DS9, he passed away for a few years ago, obviously, was a very well-respected actor. I think he's a lot of fun as the king, and him and Sarah, Sally Kellerman have a really fun um, chemistry. But that scene where the fairy is trying to show them how to have sex so they can have a daughter... That is so weird. There's no way that's in the original material that they're adapting. Um, and that's another question I had, Liam, when I was watching it. It's like, having not read the original material that made up what became the fairy tale of Sleeping Beauty, like, how much of what we're watching here is an adaptation? How much of it is made up from whole cloth? I have no idea. But anyway, yeah, no, everyone goes full full bore into it. They even let Bernadette Peters sing a song because they're like, you got Bernadette Peters, might as well have her sing a song. <laughs> Well, uh, but a song that is not essential to the plot in anyone's no, you mind. You can cut it whatsoever. out so easily. It feels very self-indulgent, but you know what? If these actors are indulging themselves a little bit because they want to have a good time and they're able to do it on Showtime's dime, it's fine by me. As long as it, it's it's better that they're having a good time than if they were having a miserable time, which there are some anthology shows where people don't seem to be having a lot of fun. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Uh, so this is one of the times where we are covering something that is not our main sort of topic, but, you know, it's one of the uh, lesser known things that uh, Carol Kane has done. We've done um, different uh, TV productions and other filmed plays for public television or other sources. And as we're sort of diving into this material, I couldn't help but think about your... Uh, tendency to like obsessive completism so like how much how much is our coverage of this based purely upon this like you know almost mental health issue that you have and how much do you think is really necessary for the show i picture a scenario liam you want to talk about a mental health issue a scenario where you and i get to talk to carol kane sure and we're like carol kane we've seen everything you've ever done We've seen more of your career than literally anyone. We've seen more of it than you have probably seen yourself. That's the level of completism, yes, that I aspire to. And I know that that's ridiculous, Liam. And I know it drags you into places. I mean, look, this is way less egregious than that entire movie we talked about last episode where she appears for one frame, maybe, right? Right. right. Here, she's the, she's she's a part of an ensemble. She's she's on the, the video box. I mean, she's she's there because she's a well-known actress at that time period and she has a few scenes in it and she's notable in it this one isn't so egregious there will be more egregious examples to come sure. i mean i would ar- i would argue <laughs> there, there, there are two aspects here one is i'm exaggerating because this is coming on the tail end of last episode in which she was not i believe in the movie i believe that, that is <laughs> some sort of weird hoax and she's not in the movie um but on top of that I think that there, you know, this is what people tune into the show for. People listen to Cinema Sports Board because we cover stuff so extensively and because we're so niche and whatever. But because we recently did an episode where we literally sold out and talked about the most obvious thing we could, coming back to this, there was some part of my brain that was like, we don't need to talk about this right now. Why? And I'm sure that's coming from the fact that I thought I was ready to go. And then you had to remind me that I needed to watch this thing. But there was definitely a part of my brain that was like, what the, this doesn't fucking, why are we fucking, why? I don't understand. Liam, I would, I can think you could make a strong argument that of the two things that we're talking about in this episode, 
This fairy tale theater episode is way more easy to pitch to your average person as something that they might want to watch. It's accessible for one thing. They can watch it on YouTube right now. Has all these stars in it. Shelley Duvall is still a name to a certain group of you know. This is easy to sell. It's like a Sleeping Beauty adaptation. Uh, try selling the movie that we're going to be talking about in a minute that a has never been released on DVD and that nobody seems to fucking like. <laughs> for me as a viewer, Doug, they were not that different. Uh, <laughs> I guess percentage percentage wise they probably have the same amount of calcane. Yeah, that's fair. I guess <laughs> I guess in being shorter, Sleeping Beauty might have been better. But in reality, <laughs> I think they're about equal. So, with that said, let's really quick before we transition to the movie, just mention really quick, how did you feel about Carol Kane as the good fairy? Did you like the voice she was doing, which I think <laughs> She would become known for later, almost exclusively, doing that voice. Uh, But what did you think about the voice, the character, all that? All right, let's contextualize it just really quickly. King and queen, they have a daughter. They basically have to invite all the fairies that are in the area to some sort of christening type situation where they all, you know, they they, uh, give her beauty and wisdom and all that shit. And because uh, Beverly D'Angelo's fairy character does not get invited, she gets pissed, which is why she curses her to prick her finger and fall into a deep sleep. They don't really make that big of a deal of the deep sleep, to be honest with you. Anyway, Carol Clint Kane plays the, the, the good fairy. She's after everyone gives their abilities. She has to use the bathroom or something. So she's out of the room. Beverly D'Angelo curses her. Then she comes back. And instead of, uh, when she pricked her finger, the sleeping beauty dying, she changes it so that she'll sleep instead. It's not really that much of an improvement considering the power that she suggests that she may or may not have. But anyway, so Carol Kane, she's part of that. And uh, she does show up later on as well to kind of reinforce the sleeping thing when everyone falls asleep. And uh, yeah, she's doing a kind of an exaggerated version of the voice that she did on Taxi to right, you know, like the foreign voice. Her voice in this is less annoying than the other fairies who have all been sped up and they have an effect on their voice. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's she's fine. (laughs) They all have these face paint on. They look very, very strange. It's fine. She's good. You know, I like I, Cal Kane's adorable. She's uh, she's a lot of fun and she seems to be having a good time, but she's playing kind of a dopey character. I like seeing her. I like that she's bringing some goofiness to the role. I like that it's one of the moments in the uh, uh, production that are that is silly without being horny. Because um, you hate silly horniness. No, I love it, but it just felt weird <laughs> in this fucking thing. Uh, anyways, you know what? I don't want to just smash on Look, this thing. Look, I wish Carol Kane had Let's the Beverly D'Angelo role because that Beverly D'Angelo role is so much more. I agree. Know, Actually, I can, I can agree with that. Uh, I, I don't think this is a very accurate thing. I think they, they really tried to make this somehow more palatable for an adult audience, and it doesn't work. So let's take a break. We're going to come back to something else that is meant for an adult audience and I don't think works. Over the Brooklyn Bridge. We'll be right back. L.B. Sherman has problems. Hey, more than 10 people at one time and there's no room to breathe. He's got problems you can't believe. I don't want to discuss this with you anymore, all right? My Albie is the politest boy in this family. Oh, come on, Leonard. You sit down before I turn you into chopped liver. His biggest problem is his love affair with Elizabeth. I love you. Your Albie is a schmendrick. Nobody is happy with the way you live your life. Mom, I'm going to make you into a grandma. Which girl? Don't touch me. She's 28. She knows how to cook. She's a virgin. Albie has a lot of problems with women. Mm -hmm. Ah. 
He also has a dream, but it keeps drifting away from him. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Albie doesn't like problems in his life. Buy a restaurant for dumping one board and taking up with another one? Oh, my God, what an uncle. Right or wrong, I'm right. Did make a fool out of me. A fool! He gives a little, you take a little. He gives a little, you take a little. <laughs> he just wants a little peace and quiet. Oh. But everyone else has a different idea. Well, you know I love you, isn't that enough? No. Over the Brooklyn Bridge, a film by Menachem Golan, with Elliot Gould, Margot Hemingway, Sid Caesar, Burt Young, Shelley Winters, and Carol Kane. A Jewish man who owns a Brooklyn deli asks his domineering uncle for a loan so he can buy his dream restaurant in Manhattan. But the uncle demands that he give up his Gentile girlfriend, even though she's one of the few sources of stability in his somewhat chaotic life. It's 1983's Over the Brooklyn Bridge, directed by uh, Menachem Golan, Menachem Golan, uh, which I'm sure people know him and his cousin, Yoram Globus, i.e. Golan Globus Productions, i.e. Canon. Uh, they are Israeli filmmakers. They actually started off making uh, teen sex comedies in Israel. Uh, what is the name of that one that everyone knows, Doug? Uh, you're one... talking about the Last American Virgin, though that's not. No, no, Israel. no. The what? We yeah, have the one they made in. Didn't they make one in Israel that Last American yeah, Virgin they... is basically a remake of? It is absolutely. Wait, but what's gonna... it called? Because is, is it Lemon Popsicle or is that something else? I think that's something else. Lemon Popsicle is an Israeli sex comedy, though. Oh yes, it what? is. Uh, is that... But the one that uh, Last American Virgin is based oh, off of. It was Lemon Popsicle. Hey, not oh bad. really? Okay. Yep. Hmm. Uh, regardless. People know people know Canon Group. I I hope if for some reason you don't, you know they existed as a production company before Golden Globus took over. But their era of having taken over as this like low to mid budget, uh, you know, American film, mostly genre films. Though I think part of what makes them fascinating as an entity is not just their extremely crazy genre films or even their sure. mid tier genre mm-hmm. films. It was their interest in trying to get an Oscar and thus putting out occasionally art house stuff. And in fact, some of the stuff they put out that maybe doesn't get as much attention as like masters of the universe or something. um, Some of it's really great. Some of it's terrible, but some of it's really great. Uh, But they also made their own movies as we were, as we were already discussing. This is one of the movies that uh, uh, Menachem Golan directed, which I think is great. Uh, We'll see if the movie's any good, but uh, it's interesting. (laughs) I don't know, Doug, other than, those sex comedies of which I've seen a few. I don't know that I've seen any of his movies that he directed that aren't that though. You could argue that this is just an adult version of a sex comedy, but um, you know, anything that they did that he did on his own, I don't really know other than things like, you know, last American Virgin. I mean, he directed Israeli movies going back to the early sixties, right? Yeah, so, I don't I mean, think I've seen any of, I don't think yeah, I've seen I, any of his Israeli movies at all. Yeah, and, and honestly, a lot of Israeli movies don't get a lot of play outside of Israel sure. anyway, uh, especially of that time period. But I think but, his movies, in in retrospect, get some attention just because of who he is and because, you know, people – there's a certain retro interest in teen sex comedies. Yeah, absolutely, though. He also directed Operation Thunderbolt. That is a movie that I know about. Oh, which, I've never which, seen it. Yeah, but that was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film in, like, 1977, I think. Sure, so, I mean, you yeah. know, he he was building his reputation. Because he didn't direct Lemon Popsicle, but he produced it. But uh, that's the other thing about canon is that 
that line between directing and producing is very, very thin with canon films. Like they'll step in wherever they want and say, we got to have this and got to have this and do this kind of movie. So they were very, very kind of hands-on, at least in the early days of canon. Then they got into having so many projects then that they couldn't be as hands-on. But uh, yeah, I mean... Well, and they became notorious for producing production, producing promotional materials before a movie existed. Yep. And selling the promotional materials and then making the movie based upon vaguely what was in the poster you know so uh they're notorious i think a lot of people know who they are uh this was written by arnold somkin who actually passed away before the film went into production um he was really known for tv work like adam 12 and emergency with an exclamation point on the end uh somehow (laughs) doug noted here in our notes has a writing credit on a 2009 film called oy vey my son is gay (laughs) also with with exclamation points yeah 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 (laughs) Sorry, I just thought it was so strange. But I mean, that Oive part, I think Menachem may, may have had a uh, a credit on that after he passed away as well. Um, but I mean, the, the Jewishness of that uh, certainly suggests that this is something that Arnold Sumpkin had an interest in, which is very, very reflective in the material of this movie. Yeah, exactly. That this is very steeped in the community, and that the the conversation about what's happening is is part of that identity. A uh, quick uh, historical note here. Um, over the Brooklyn Bridge had issues with labor unions. They tried to halt the production with a strike. Once it was clear, Cannon had no intention of paying their required rates, which is like that feels to me Doug, like a very Cannon thing. But you know, it is, no, it is no it kidding. Is. I yeah. I was just reading because there's these two books, the Cannon film guys, that are so great. Really, really go in depth, interview everyone involved. But like those later American Ninja sequels, they were all shot in South Africa to to save money. You know, that was one of the reasons Michael Dudikoff left the franchise. He's like, I don't want to fucking film in apartheid era South Africa, but hey, they would do whatever they had to do to save a buck. And with these protests, Golan didn't let it hold him up. He still got the production done. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't give a fuck. Like he's gonna do <laughs> what he needs to do, whatever. Even wrapped up a little early. Um, yeah. Cannon held their ground, arguing that it wasn't feasible for a low-budget production to pay the same rates as a $50 million film coming from the big Hollywood studios. Their battle eventually led to a new allowance where an independent and low-budget shoots, at the time up to a $3 million production, could hire union workers at more affordable rates. Golan would later proudly refer to this as the Cannon contract. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it's hard because I have compassion for low-budget productions that they might need something different from a union. Sure. I don't think on paper that's crazy. But I also know that Canon, like some other notorious producers, were rip-off artists, right? They, yep. they were they were con men as much as they were uh, uh, producers of art. And so just knowing that this happened makes me skeptical that it's a good idea. And it, it might be fine. It might turn out this was actually a great thing. But there's some part of me that's like, did, did he just fuck everybody over? I don't know. <laughs> uh, also, notoriously, you know, we, we've said now the title a few times, Over the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, the movie begins with our main character, Albie, uh, played by, of course, by Elliot Gould, catching a ride, um, jumping in a uh, 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 convertible, right? He's in a convertible. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. He yeah, jumps yeah. in uh, uh, the Burt Young's car, his friend. Yeah. 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 Uh, his car. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they, they head over to Manhattan. He's going to be late for a meeting in Manhattan. And the the title sequence comes up over the Brooklyn Bridge as they speed over to Manhattan on the Manhattan Bridge, not on the Brooklyn Bridge. And apparently now I'll tell you what, guys, I did not notice this. And unlike (laughs) Doug, Doug has a good excuse. He's Canadian. He doesn't even know where the fuck New York is. 
He doesn't know anything about the big city. The fact that it was, the fact that a movie about New York takes place like it was filmed in New York and not Toronto is to me it's already weird. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I am someone who's been over the Manhattan Bridge many times, especially when I lived in Pennsylvania, because when I was trying to get to Brooklyn for various things, that was usually where Google would take me. You know, I don't know myself. I got to do whatever Google says. And so the fact that I watched him come over the bridge, knowing full well. It was the Manhattan Bridge from my own travels, and it didn't occur to me that it's weird that they're on the Manhattan Bridge, as the title says, over the Brooklyn Bridge. It's just a sign that I'm either an idiot or New Yorkers are just more uptight about this sort of thing. I don't know. But I had no idea. I had, it didn't even occur to me. It's mentioned in the book. It's mentioned in the IMDb, IMDb trivia as like something people always notice, but I have to be honest. Like, I'm, even right now talking about it, I'm like, who gives a fuck? <laughs> I guess it's different with the Brooklyn Bridge dog because it is iconic. It's it's in culture a lot. You know, there are jokes about buying the Brooklyn Bridge, not buying the Manhattan Bridge. You know what I'm saying? Sure, like, sure. It has a certain place in our history. It didn't fucking occur to me. So whatever. We'll move on from that. Doug, what did you think <laughs> of Over the Manhattan Bridge? How did it make you feel? How did you feel about the performance? Are you stoked on uh, on uh, 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 Globus? Wait, is it Globus or Golan? Golan, as a director, what, what did you think of the movie? I mean, I'm not particularly stoked on him as a director. I don't think there's anything very visually interesting outside of, and this is something we talked about in our previous episode, just getting to see New York in the 80s, right? And all of its glory and all yes, of its shabbiness, right? Yeah. It's one of the most enjoyable things about watching this movie, which unfortunately isn't available in very nice versions. We had to watch like a full screen. I mean, it, it looked like it was digital in some way, but it, it's, this is not a movie that is very commonly easily available that you can watch it on YouTube right now as of the recording of this. I found it confusing for the most part, Liam, mostly because I'm so distanced from an insular Jewish community that would see one of their members marrying a Gentile as being like such a embarrassment that that it would be something that that he would struggle with. Like to me, it's like that doesn't I know that's that goes on and has gone on. And there's lots of other cultures that have variations of that. But I just, I just don't understand it because the Elliot Gould character, who is such a whiny asshole sometimes in this movie, he's not really an asshole. Maybe that's not the right word. He's just kind of hapless, right? He doesn't know what to do. He's all confused. and But he's like, he's so committed to buying this fancy restaurant in Manhattan. That's what the whole movie is based on. It's like, I have a, he has a greasy spoon restaurant that does really well. But he aspires to have a fancy restaurant in Manhattan, but he can't afford it. He has almost all the money, but he still needs $60,000. And his uncle, played by Sid Caesar, his uncle has tons of money because he works in women's garments. Uh, <laughs> he, he, and so he goes to him, but he says that he'll only give him the money if he breaks up with his Gentile girlfriend and meets a nice Jewish girl instead. And we, Cal Kane ends up being the one that he ends up pursuing in a, in a pretty amusing scene. And like that's the whole crux of the movie. He won't give up his dream of this restaurant to be with the woman he loves. And at the end, of course, he doesn't. He gets everything that he wants, um, which is great. But it doesn't really... And there is actually a really interesting family gathering at the end where he has to hash it out with his uncle, which I have to say was one of the more unique parts of this movie because it feels like uh, a perspective of people who really understand the mindset and the cultural values of these people, which is something that is so outside of my own situation that I found it particularly fascinating. But overall, Liam, it's not very romantic and it's not very funny. So that's really difficult for a romantic comedy. And it doesn't matter how much I love Elliot Gould, and I love him. I fucking love Elliot Gould. 
doesn't matter how much I love Burt Young, who just recently passed away, who I think is in the two best scenes in this entire movie. Uh, and actually, I'm just going to say what they are right now because I might not have an opportunity later. There's one scene where Burt Young has to help Elliot Gould take a piss because he's going through some sort of diabetic episode. And I thought that that was not like it was very lowbrow, but I did find that whole thing very amusing. And the other one is that scene, Liam, where Burt Young is trying to show that Elliot Gould is not in love by narrating a potential romantic encounter with this sure. like, tennis yeah. player, yeah. this beautiful blonde one. And he's like, he's, Elliot Gould starts to fa- to uh, fantasize about this woman coming close to him. And he's like doing this voiceover. And it's so wild. <laughs> and it's so weird to hear Burt Young <laughs> trying to get his friend aroused by this woman. Uh, but aside from that, Liam, I don't think I uh, even smiled the rest of the movie outside of maybe Carol Kane's character. But we'll get to that in just a bit. I basically agree with everything you just said, Doug. I think part of the issue with the movie, right, is that um, Elliot Gould and Margot Hemingway have almost no chemistry of any kind. Th- th- you're exactly right. You're exact. There's also, sorry, not to interrupt. There's also kind of a weird age difference. Elliot, Elliot Gould is playing. I was about to. Go okay, there. please. Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, because you know, not just the difference between them, which is. You know, significant. Uh, Margot Hemingway is 29 at the filming of this movie, and Elliot Gould is 45 in real yeah, life. Playing someone in his late 30s, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he looks 45 in the movie. Like, yep. Here's the thing about Elliot Gould for me, and I, I don't know how other people feel. If we're talking about, um, oh, the name just went out of my head. Help me out here, Doug. The long Neo- goodbye. Yeah, thank you. If we're talking Elliot Gould, long goodbye. This is a sexy man. Yes, he's he's different looking. He's not your standard leading man. But when when people I know of whom I know quite a few who look at Elliot Gould and Long Goodbye and they're like, that is the man for me. I get it. He's an attractive gentleman in that movie. And I'm like, yeah, this, he's he's kind of a sex symbol in this movie. He just looks like an older dude. And he does not look the same age as Margot Hemingway in any way. But also he doesn't look the right age. To be in this fucking crisis that no, he's in, right? He does not. Part of the problem here is we're supposed to totally identify with him. And to a certain extent, I definitely identify with him more than I do his uncle. But the fact that his uncle doesn't respect him fully as a man is not a surprise to me when I see this 45-year-old man who looks <laughs> every year his age acting like a spoiled brat. And it's yeah. not just the dating a Gentile <laughs> thing, which is a thing, but in every aspect of his life, he is immature. And he has no sort of understanding in the movie of what is obvious to me, which is that he runs a fucking dinette in Brooklyn and he is dating a woman who's not only significantly younger than him, but is in fashion, right? Like yeah. she's has a big deal, real person job. You don't get the feeling that she's famous, but if you're that successful in fashion, you could eventually be famous, right? This yeah, is someone who absolutely. could be a big fucking deal. And this is a guy who slings hamburgers to people who hate him and thinks that he's going to be a big fucking deal. And so, like, side note, his dream, by the way, of this restaurant in Manhattan is nothing to do with being a chef, right? Yeah. At no point in the movie do they talk about food or what he's going to serve at this fucking fancy-ass place in Manhattan. It's just about leaving Brooklyn. Uh, 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 We're going to talk about that in a second. But for me, 
I actually know people who have had situations not as dramatic as this, but have had awkward situations around culture or religion and their partner. So that part wasn't totally alienating, though this was way more intense than anything I've seen. Mostly when it comes to the dating a Gentile trope as a plot thing, I know that more from media than I know in real life. Mm -hmm. But I do know people who've had at least some tension over their partner with their family, whether that was... Uh, because they were Jewish or some other identity that made it difficult for them to be with someone else. Yeah, the Protestant Catholic stuff. In it happens. Irish culture. I mean, oh, it happens. Totally. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But the rest of the movie, which is about him, honestly, coming of age. That's what the movie kind of is. It's him yeah. coming to terms with his own It's self. him becoming a man. Like you yeah. said, that's what it, the whole thing is about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No connection whatsoever. It's such a fucking bummer. The whole time, I'm like, what? And because he has no chemistry with Margot Hemingway, she literally... To me, the vibe is she mothers him and they have sex. That's it. Like, yeah. I don't see any chemistry other than she keeps his diabetic ass from dying. And <laughs> we're, we're to believe from two scenes that they occasionally hump. And that's it. That's all you get as far as them having any she sort of chemistry. She doesn't seem to like him very much. No. Right? Like, There's she wants- no indication that she cares for him on a personal everyday level, like she's caring for him. She is lovingly taking care of him, but they don't have any spark in their hanging out scene. I mean, this movie is annoyed by him. This movie's view of relationships in general is so fucked, right? right? Every person hates their wife. Every man hates their wife. Every man wishes that they, right? Like, and the women that you think are demure are all like sex. Okay. Well, that's what I'm saying. We'll get into the performance of it all, but as a character that's written, we're supposed to believe that it would be totally okay for him to marry Carol Kane's character, Cheryl, uh, who he has no affection for. And we have no indication that she has any affection for him mm-hmm. in their interactions. But then she does weird sex stuff. And that's how we know it's okay for him to leave her because she did weird sex stuff. And she he also does, does drugs. That's true. Him, she does do him, him Him picking up the fucking joint and sniffing it and throwing it down. You're telling me Elliot Gould didn't get the fuck smoke. out of here. <laughs> Plus, I mean, side note, if you're a diabetic, right, pot is way more attractive to you than booze, right? Like, booze <laughs> is going to fuck up your sugars, man. Pot doesn't do – now, you might get the munchies, which is a diabetic danger, but keep some sugar-free snacks around. I, I want to get back to this, just as a quick note, this diabetes thing. In this movie, there is an effort to make diabetes be an essential aspect of this character, which is kind of unique. I don't know a lot of movies that focus on that. Certainly not at this time when this is more up in the air, right? Like, he he's, you don't see him test his blood, right? He is just jamming needles in his ass. He, for the most part, doesn't seem like he is totally on top of it the way that people would be today. How did you feel about this part of the film? Is this important to the plot? Did you feel like it was used well? What did you think about diabetes as an aspect of the movie? It is. It, you're right. It is very unique. It's kind of interesting. But when they bring it up early in the movie, you're like, huh, how's that going to play into the rest of the thing? And the only way it really plays in is to that one scene where Burt Young has to help him take a piss so they can test. I guess they're testing it for the sugar content i don't know exactly how how uh, keto- ketosis ketosis okay so so they're checking the, the ketones in it which is i mean okay but uh, but so there's that that happens and then later margot hemingway goes to visit the restaurant that Elliot Gould works in it's after they broke up to uh and, and she meets his mother played by shelly winters and they talk about his insulin and the net you know the need to have it on hand and all the time but i'll tell you that scene Liam, is exactly what you said it's basically his new mother his girlfriend meeting his old mother and about the, how they both want to take care of him. It feels like that's what the movie thinks a perfect 
you know, partner in life is, is marrying your mother, even better than marrying your cousin, which is what Carol Kane is in this movie. Marrying your mother, who happens to be young and beautiful, and uh, that's it. Like, has no other element of their personality whatsoever. It is distracting. And and side note, as a diabetic, the diabetic representation in this movie. Also, the idea that both of these people will just have all this shit tons of insulin on the side. Not only is that not practical, it is a real kick in the face to people today when no one could stockpile that amount of insulin that could eventually go bad. You have to throw it out because of the fucking ridiculous insulin costs that yeah. are at play today. But uh, yeah, it's just it's 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 made an important part of the movie, but it's not utilized very well. And it really is only in that scene where he gets drunk, which like. It's not clear why he's getting drunk in that scene the way he is, right? Like, it's not – we understand what the the, the <laughs> kickoff is, but it just feels random. They, it, it, to put it another way, if it's – I don't know if it's the script or if it's Elliot Gould's performance, but there's a lot of moments where he's making decisions in this movie that are not sold on screen. He's just yes. doing them, and it's not clear why he's doing them. And I'm still I not entirely 100% sure – I'm not entirely sure how he ends up back with Carol Kane leading to the climactic dinner moment. That feels like it comes completely out of nowhere. I guess he decided not to take the mob money. It doesn't – just to give you guys a little more context, once he decides that – he doesn't even really decide to leave Margot Hemingway, you know, yeah. to leave Elizabeth. She decides to leave him because of shit his uncle said, which, by the way, if he was an adult, knowing full well that his uncle just sabotaged his relationship – that, the conversation would be over, right? Like an yeah. actual adult would be like, "Yo, you're a monster, and we're done here." But no, my man is just going along with it. Uh, he he decides in desperation to go to the mob for money. His friend, played by Burt Young, is like, "I don't know, this is a good idea." Does that that never resolves? We just figure because the plot moves forward that he must not have taken the mob money, and right. then he's at dinner with Carol Kane and his family. That dinner scene, I agree is maybe the best scene in the movie and really has some interesting stuff going on in the interactions around the table. But how we got there is like, doesn't really make sense in, a, in, in any particular way, right? Like He sells his restaurant, right? He sells his restaurant to the black employee and right. that's how he gets the extra money that he needed. That was, no, but that was already, already the plan. I thought it was already happening. Yeah. So I just, I, yeah, some of it just doesn't really hold together for me. Uh, nor so, do I care. Again, who gives a fuck if he gets a fancy new restaurant? Just get get married or or don't get married. Stay with your girlfriend and don't rely on your uncle's money that you don't even need because you make a perfectly decent life. Maybe I'm looking at it from the perspective of 2024 well, where aspirations of just making a living is enough for me. Yeah. Well, I think also there's an aspect of this I want to bring up because these these are two character points that I think might be hard for people to understand nowadays uh, for various reasons but also might be the film's fault for dropping the ball. One was the diabetic thing, right? And I think for modern diabetics, our lives are not quite on the on the razor's edge the way his is, right? In the movie, you're really supposed to get the idea that, like, two bad decisions and this guy dies, right? Like, that's – and to be fair, in 1983, that might have been what diabetes was. Sure. That, like, you have one too many bad nights and you're that's it. You're done. So much for, for Albie. But um, – in the modern world, that's not how it is, and I really don't think they deployed it well in the movie. The other thing here is something that I think would be really confusing for younger people who aren't old enough to remember when this was the case. That's the relationship to Burroughs, and that is made really clear in the movie. When my man is at a dinette in Brooklyn, and he says to people, I'm going to New York, 
Hey guys, I got a meeting in the city. I'm going to the city. I'm going to New York. Doug, you know this because you make fun of me about it a lot. In college, I was in a band that was not very good. And we did a few revolver method. We did a few little tours here and there. And on one of these (laughs) shitty, very unsuccessful tours, we played a bar in Staten Island. And when we were loading out from the show, these young ladies were leaning out the window of the ladies' bathroom, talking to us as we were loading stuff in. And we were being nice because we didn't want to be rude, but they were definitely too young for them to be flirting with us the way they were. (laughs) And at one point they said, do you guys ever get a chance to play in the city? And I said what any rational human being would say. Aren't we in the city right now? (laughs) And she said, no, this is Staten Island, you idiot. I mean the city. And this is the thing I think that maybe is probably still true for Staten Island. But I don't think a lot of people living in fucking Brooklyn now are like, man, I can't wait till I can get to Manhattan. Someday I will succeed and make the – motherfucker, that's not a thing anymore. And I don't know that the movie – the movie just assumes that everyone watching it is like, if you live in Brooklyn, that's the worst. But if you – I would restaurant in Manhattan, that's the fucking best. And a lot of the dynamics of the movie rely on that understanding – Doug, you're in Canada. You don't even know where fucking New York City is. How did, how did <laughs> I've that work? I've been to New York City and I've You've been You've never seen it. You don't know what it is. No, I don't. How does that work for you watching this movie being like, well, they're all in the United States, so it's basically the same. <laughs> I read a review where they said that in 2024 or 2023, maybe when they wrote it, uh, like the dinette in Brooklyn would probably be hipper than the fucking big place in Manhattan. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily true either. Look. This, like I was saying, this movie is insular in a lot of different ways. It does presuppose a knowledge of certain things that I don't have, but that's okay. It can make it interesting just because it's from an insider's position, even if they get things like the Brooklyn Bridge and Manhattan Bridge incorrect. <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean, what what do you want from me here? What do, do do I understand it? No, I don't understand it. I guess yeah, I and, I, and I mean, you know, do you I think guess it maybe works, there's, but do you, like, I, you don't have to understand everything in a movie personally to think it works in the movie Does oh i think it, i think it works only in the sense that anyone can relate to an aspirational type thing like that right i mean he instead of being in new york he could have just lived uh, you know several miles away or, or, or in my case like living in scarborough which is the greater toronto area compared to downtown sure. toronto yeah. it's probably comparable in some way um but again it the crux of it is that he's willing to give up anything in his life all the most important shit to get this thing that he doesn't need, right? And that what he really, what he should really be focusing on is the fact that he has a wonderful woman and that he can man up and tell his uncle to go fuck himself. But at the end of the day, the thing that really hurts this is that this guy should be 27, not right. 45. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's a huge part of it. I'm glad you brought it up. The other aspect is, and I think you alluded to it, the restaurant is a metaphor for his relationship, right? He wants to upgrade he, and 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 he wants to have something fancier, but there's no indication in the movie that he has any passion that justifies the upgrade, right? He's not uh, he's not fucking on the bear working at an Italian beef place when he's a French trained cook, right? He's not. Well, he's got Abby special. I'll be special. Sorry. It's an egg cream. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't. There's no indication that he has any passion for food. And there's no indication of even he understands what a restaurant in Manhattan means for him on any sort of personal level. He's just convinced that Brooklyn, though it provides for him and it's very comfortable for him, is shit compared to whatever's going on in Manhattan. And that's how he treats his relationship. Mark, He loves Margot Hemingway. He loves Elizabeth. She's great. 
But there's some part of him that wants to be open to the idea of better options. And I think that is the metaphor of the movie. It does not work. And partly it's because we're never sold, in my mind, that Albie has any passions at all except for when he has the fight at the restaurant with his uncle. Yeah. He's given no place where we understand his motivating emotional factors until this restaurant scene where suddenly he becomes a man. And I'm like, cool. Suddenly, Albie's an actual character. Good thing there's like, what, 10 minutes, five minutes of the movie left? You <laughs> like know? Five minutes. It, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And that was really frustrating to me. Doug, funny enough, we just watched a movie that was very New York and very Jewish. How do you think this film compares to Can She Bake a Cherry Pie? Isn't it fascinating that we watched these two movies back to back? I wonder if, if Carol Kane was filming this when she appeared maybe in Can She Bake a Cherry Pie? The thing I like most about both of those movies was the same, which is being able to see New York in the 80s, right? And because it's such a very specific place and the way that the city is part of the plot to a really great extent. But in terms of their attitudes towards these relationships, they couldn't be any different. I will say that whatever issues we had with Can't She Bake a Cherry Pie, the two actors at their core, they had real chemistry together, right? Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's weird because in real life, it's hard to believe that they could ever be attracted to each other or have or have that kind of, of deep friendship. But when you watch them on screen, it's like you can feel that they're very odd. They're very strange people, but they really do have a connection together. But, like, you're exactly right. I didn't really even really consider it until you brought it up. There is, there's a world where Elliot Gould and Margot Hemingway could have dated because Elliot Gould was a big celebrity. But in the context of these characters, they could never get together in a million years because there's nothing to him that she could see as attractive, right? I mean... Again, look, I'm being very, I'm simplifying right to what you said. It's not that Elliot Gould is unattractive or that they, they, uh, or that she is so attractive that he would be completely out of her league, but like the worlds that they exist in are so different. And I don't even mean the Jewish and Gentile world. I mean, like her world seems to be completely disconnected. She's on the 45th floor, right? He's, he's, right. he's down in the diner. It, it, and that could be the core of the movie if they wanted it to be, that they're from right. two different worlds, but they have a connection. But more, all they needed was like two scenes of them being warm and loving to each other that weren't just her jamming a needle in his ass or them fucking, right? All you needed was them like hugging and saying, I love you and, you know, and, and showing actual relationship warmth. My problem is that I don't know if the people who made this movie know that people in relationships have that, right. are supposed to yes. have that warmth yes. to each other because there's no other example of that warmth in the movie. No, every, every relationship is either transactional or hostile, right? Exactly. Like those are your two options. It's like, I mean, oh, actually, there is one. Burt Young and Elliot Gould. If anyone should get together, it's <laughs> Burt Young and Elliot Gould because they're the only people who seem to genuinely like each other. Yeah, they have movie. actual affection for one another. How, yeah. how strange is that? <laughs> and I guess I guess Carol Kane and her dad, they seem to love each other, too. Um, By the way, Liam, I know it's not in the notes. This movie is also incredibly racist. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's yes, a yes. bit with some Japanese businessmen at the beginning. It's just like every Japanese presentation, every 80s movie that you've ever seen. It is horrible and embarrassing. And then there is some, you know, racially charged language yelled at between Sid Caesar and a taxi driver later in the movie that's supposed to be like really reflective of how he sees relationships, which is that if it's a Gentile woman, at some point she's going to be like anti Semitic towards you because that's how they all think. And it's just like, I mean, look, this is a charged period of time in our history, as they all are regarding anti-Semitism. But Jesus, what a weird scene that is. I mean, I think it's meant to represent a very common idea, which is like 
that there's a kind of friendly hostility between communities that just live around each other. So right. what you're supposed to get is that, like, you know, his uncle. I mean, I think he is, but by the context of the movie, it's not that his uncle is particularly prejudiced against any of these groups, but these groups are supposed to keep to themselves, be generally hostile to one another, but not have any embedded ill will. So, like, if someone was to say to him, well, you can't take money from Gentiles because they're not Jewish, he'd be like, well, that's fucking gross. Why wouldn't I take their money? But you wouldn't marry them right like there's this thing where it's like we can live near each other we can work together we can have commerce but we can't share our personal lives with each other because there are barriers there and i think the movie sees that as an old school mindset but what they don't realize is that in portraying that you then end up relying on these like very gross racial things right yeah that have become charged in a way that are not the same Right. Like lots of old school New Yorkers would be like, hey, you know, we all grew up throwing racial epithets at each other. It didn't mean anything. It's like, well, it didn't mean anything to you. Right. But some people who live there, it did mean something to, especially when it translated to police violence, lack of resources. Right. Right. actually designing bridges so it'd be harder for buses to get to where black people live. You know what I mean? Like every aspect of life is so shaped by race that you can't have this general, oh, we're just good naturally hostile to each other. Yeah, well, but some of you have all the money and power and some of us get nothing. So it's not friendly. It's not fun. It's not yeah. cute. It the way is, that they present it is so, right, because at first the cab driver mistakes Sid Caesar's character as being Irish and then Sid Caesar's character mistakes the cab driver as being mexican and so they're both throwing like like jibes out of each other because of the race where they're both incorrect which exactly says what you were saying right which is just like hey it's just what new yorkers do right right but you're right that's that's it's great if at the end of the day you can be like hey take me in my cab anyway to where i want to go but like it has actual infrastructure uh consequences right i mean there are people who are who are horrifically racist and this movie at its core is still about insular societies that don't right. want outsiders coming into them. Sino, also not accurate. Uh, 1983 New York, anyone who speaks Spanish is just called Spanish. That's still a thing now, right? Yeah. He wouldn't have said Mexican or Puerto He would have said Spanish because that's still a problem in New York is that anyone who speaks Spanish, no matter what diverse community they're from, people just say, yeah, the Spanish guy. Well, he's not Spanish. He's not or, or she's not Spanish. They're not from Spain, right? But yeah. like that's just the term for all people who speak Spanish or who look like they might speak Spanish, even if they're from Brazil or some other place where they don't speak Spanish. Anyways, that's, a, that's one of those things that's just a very New York thing. <laughs> Let's move on here to the performances because I don't want to spend all day talking about this fucking movie um i know that you love margot hemingway and you hate muriel hemingway you went on and on before we start recording guys he's like muriel hemingway sucks i'm so glad that margot's in this she's definitely the better sister it, you know it, it, it's a tragic story but also she's like my favorite actress of all time so i know that you love her but otherwise how did you feel about the performances in the movie liam you can't get me like this uh because i'll be very honest about my feelings about these things (laughs) uh last night i messaged liam uh and to tell him that because i was watching the movie i said that margot hemingway basically has the most annoying voice i've ever heard in my entire life and look listeners margot hemingway had a tragic horrible life you're so cruel you're so cruel it it ended very sadly poor woman right and you know she was a model she obviously was someone who was um Maybe not as adept at acting at this point, but she acted in a lot of different movies. I think her sister, you know, who who appeared in a lot more and, and developed into a very strong actress, is a better actress. 
And in this movie, Margot Hemingway, maybe part of the issue with the chemistry is that is that she's just not a strong performer. But maybe one of the issues is that her voice is so annoying. I just cannot get over her where <laughs> she. I can't even do it. It's such a weird. It's not an accent. It's nothing like that. It's just this weird tonal thing that she has that uh, I just had a little difficulty with when I was watching the movie. And maybe that kind of added to the distance between these two characters. But really, this whole movie is stacked against them, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's an age difference. It's an attractiveness difference. It's, a, it's, it's the fact that they live in those two different worlds. And the very fact that the movie just decided not to show us a relationship. Because they're supposed to be two years into the relationship, right? So it's it's past a lot of the very introductory hardcore lovey-dovey stuff but there's still there's still something really attractive to me as a viewer mm-hmm. about seeing two people who are comfortably in love you know who yes. are who have that comfort within each other to just be themselves and you know to it's what i have in my own marriage and it's something that i still like seeing maybe it's because we don't see it that often because so many movies are fo- are, are focused on the introductory aspect, and so but there's no reason this movie couldn't have shown that warmth. It just chooses not to. Yeah, uh, I mean, maybe this the script uh, writer was incapable of that. I don't know. Uh, I but I will say, it, performance. I'm gonna have to check out Oy Vey, My son is very yeah, gay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perform performance wise, I feel like this movie has the blessing of not just Elliot Gould, who I feel like isn't given much to do. And of course, Carol Kane, who we're focused on, but Sid Caesar, Burt Young, and Shelley Winters feel wasted in their roles. Though I will say, Sid Caesar gets more opportunities to be awesome. And while I hate the character, like Uncle Benjamin sucks. Yeah, Sid Caesar's kind of awesome in a couple of. He's those good. He's so he's good. really good, especially and, and, in that last bit. He really is something else. When he does that, the slaps are really they are impactful because of that performance. But I don't know that all of his scenes are well written and especially the opening scene with him with the very racist scene with the Asian businessman it's so fucked and he's fucked in it and it's just like a bummer Burt Young he's just mad at his wife the whole movie it's a waste Shelly Winters as the honestly nothing nothing pathetic mom like the whole point is that his mom is like the uh, in a way uh, uh, Elliot Gould is a parasite and he's finished feeding on his mom and he's ready to feed on Margot Hemingway <laughs> and she's like this husk who's been left behind <laughs> at the dinette it almost seems by the way it's felt to be like he's going to sell this dinette he's going to go to Manhattan and he's going to leave his mom working with the other guy that the mom's <laughs> not coming with him to the new restaurant this was all actually a plan to get away from his mom that's why he's selling the dinette and going to Manhattan because she'll stay there because she lives in the kitchen apparently or something like you know what I mean like she doesn't exist outside the dinette really so like anyway sorry um what if the restaurant fails I know I mean <laughs> like, they're, he's so it's, fucked it's almost certainly going to fail of course it is almost certainly of course going to it fail. is especially because again he doesn't seem to be a chef, Doug. Like, if he's gonna go to this fancy spot in 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 uh, you know what was it the the uh, I forget what neighborhood it is, but it's yeah. a really nice <laughs> Dumbo or something, right? And he's gonna go to this place in 1983, and he's gonna what? Serve them burgers and egg creams? Like that shit's not gonna work, man. How's like, he gonna afford to hire staff? Like none he's gonna of it, need a ton of, of people. We're to, going down but- a rabbit hole here that's not gonna work. Let's get back to the meat <laughs> of the matter here. Carol Kane is in the movie. <laughs> She is a she's presented to us as his more Jewish 
uh, well, obviously she's more Jewish because she's actually Jewish. But as the Jewish option, the more accepted option, who then the big reveal is that she has predilections that maybe his family would not be comfortable with if they were aware of it. But also, I don't think they care. They just care that she's Jewish. How do you feel like she what, – what are your feelings of her performance as Cheryl? I mean, I think her performance is great because she has to play kind of two versions of the character, right? She's right. that very idyllic, prim and proper school teacher, right, who goes to all the funerals and marriages and all that. And she's she's always there with her father and she loves her family. And that's all you know about her. And then, of course, he goes on a date with her, which she talks. She, he goes to the opera, but he's like a regular guy. So he falls asleep during the opera. And then she talks at him nonstop. And when she gets him home. She pulls out a bunch of drugs and puts on some uh, new age music and wants to have uh, kinky sex with him, basically. And side note, it's not clear that it's kinky. He just assumes it's kinky. Well, it's kind of clear. There's a little bit of a power dynamic, but that's not in and of itself kinky until she pulls out a strap or like something to put in his butt or like a furry outfit. You know what I mean? Like. It's the movie it's is light, like it's lightly kinky that she won't let him touch touch her and stuff like that. I mean, for him, it's I probably guess. the wildest shit that he's. Ever, I mean, I should say for him, for his character, it's the wildest shit that he's obviously ever encountered. Sure, that's, like, I guess the that's idea true. of her like pulling out drugs for them to do. Raimi's like, oh, what? I can't believe that. And it's just like Elliot Gould, you were a celebrity in the seventies, sir. Do you you fucking kidding me? Uh, but anyway, so the 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 funny thing is, you get the kind of the impression that even if. His family, Ellie Gould, uh, Albie's family, knew about what she was like behind the scenes, that they would still choose her right. over Margot Hemingway's character, yeah, who yeah. seems to be, you know, perfectly normal and reasonable in everything she does and a professional in her own, right? So so I think that is kind of an, a pretty interesting cultural point that it's making, which is that it's the surface to them that matters more than anything else, as opposed to what the person is actually like. Also, the movie has made it really clear that they're not 100% sure she's not too related to them to get married. <laughs> but they don't they, care that much about know. that either. They don't know for sure that she's... Not far enough away from them to make this a problem. Look, I'm from Newfoundland. That's a conversation I've heard many times before. <laughs> I think there's something that they should be a little more concerned about. That, <laughs> like they said, if it's more than what two generations removed, then it's okay. But uh, she might be his, his cousin, fourth cousin, or something. But but I do want to say I think it's fun that they make Carol Kane a sexy character. Uh, when she's in that outfit, I was like, "Okay, all right, maybe this movie's getting better." And then the scene sucked, but I liked I liked the outfit change in that scene. Yeah, I like that she's playing very much against type. That she's very like at first it's just like, "Oh, she's Hester Street again, right? She's this kind of character, like a very Jewish, very kind of repressed character." And then you see what she is like behind the scenes, and I think that's a lot of fun. And I'm glad that they chose her specifically for that role because otherwise this character really doesn't have much to do, but she gets a real showcase moment. Right, and the fact yes. that it's involved, you know, filthy sex and dirty drugs, hey, I'm I'm all on board with that. I, I really like Carol Kane in this. Yeah. Um I will say the only problem with that scene is that the sexy music she has on when he comes back to her boudoir is some sort of weird new wave. You know, I think it's not sexy at all it just sounds like generic 80s new wave and i'm like what is this supposed to be i don't know what's happening here uh, yeah okay over the brooklyn bridge it's not great i i think i think if you are either a canon films completist or an elliot gould completist maybe it's worth seeing you know you certainly get a lot of elliot gould in this but you know while i'm not a gould head like you are i've seen enough of his other roles to feel like this is not a great one for him Right. And it's not because he does something 
particularly bad. It's just the script is not there. The script does not give us the context we need to really make this movie totally work. But were there some scenes that were kind of fun? Yeah, if you have a reason to watch this, this is not like an a, you know avoid it at all cost movie at all. This is also the second time we've seen Elliot Gould on this program, right? Because sure. we also covered Harry and Walter go to New York yep. uh, from 1976. I, I think I may I can't remember. <laughs> I, I lose a lot of these things quickly. I think I liked Harry and Walter a little bit more than this one. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, on our next episode, we're going to be talking about 1984's Racing with the Moon in 1942, California. Two young men await induction to the U.S. Marines and say goodbye to their girlfriends. Directed by Richard Benjamin. Uh, we got Sean Penn in this. We got Elizabeth McGovern in this. We got Nicolas Cage in this. Gotta love that. And of course, you know, uh, Carol Kane. I'm Carol Kane's not listed there, so which is that's a little bit worrisome. Yeah, I'm a little worried. <laughs> Chris Glover's Chris, there. Chris Glover, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, where's where's our lady? But still, we're, we're, even if she's only in it by rumor and not in actuality, we're going to be talking about. <laughs> 1984 is racing with the moon. Hey, Doug, if people want more of this kind of bullshit, what should they do? <laughs> well, if you want to check out the latest episodes of Cinema Smorgasbord, you can always find that over at cinepunks.com, which also uh, joins a group of other wonderful podcasts and other great writing uh, from the contributors over there. Find that at cinepunks.com or on social media, Instagram, Facebook. Just look for Cinepunks, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. You can also find our entire archive of shows, including our entire archive of Praising Kane over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. We have shows devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Jackie Chan, the career of Steve Buscemi, Alejandro Jodorowsky, George Kennedy. Lots of great podcasts there, including a recently launched podcast, Cinema Smorgasbord Sells Out, where we talked about the Barbie movie. And we'll be talking about, you know, slightly more mainstream work on that as well. And you can also find Cinema Smorgasbord on Twitter slash X at Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G, or do a search on Facebook for Cinema Smorgasbord as well. Liam, you're not available on social media anymore, I believe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm on Blue Sky, but I never think to check it. I'm on Instagram, but come on, don't do that. That's weird. So uh, really just focus on the Cinepunks uh, social media, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, on like, you know, all the relevant platforms, I guess. Um, and of course, you know, uh, you're still maintaining X or whatever the sh- fuck it is. So you can check that out as well. Just posting a little bit over on X in that horrible cursed platform. You can find me over on Blue Sky. Uh, you just do a search for Doug Tilly. It's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Thank you so much for listening. Tell a friend, and we'll see you back here next time. Good night. Good night. Good night.